Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, so welcome to Behind the Knife. Uh, today, we're talking about a very important topic. So the topic today is systemic bias and racism in medicine and surgery. Just to, to frame this, the recent murder of George Floyd, among others, has demonstrated that the societal mistreatment of people of color that has then been accentuated by a global pandemic that continues to disproportionately affect minorities. It's brought to light multiple issues we already knew existed with regard to social inequities, structural racism that affect not only our patients, but our colleagues. It seems now more than ever, for whatever reason, people's ears are crying for listening. So we feel like it's important to have this discussion. So I'm joined today by three fantastic panelists. We have Carla Pugh, who's the uh, acute care surgeon, professor of surgery at Stanford, and the director of the Technology Enabled Clinical Improvement Center. And she's also the first surgeon in the United States to ever obtain a PhD in education. We have Lola Fianju, who is the assistant professor of surgery and population health sciences at Duke University. She's the Associate Director at the Duke Ford Center for Actionable Health and Data Science, and she's the Director of the Breast Clinic at, at Durham. We also have our old friend, Fabian Johnson, who's a, who's a well-known to all of our listeners. He's the Associate Professor of Surgery and Oncology, the Chief of GI Surgical Oncology, the Director of the Peritoneal Surface Malignancy Program, and the Program Director of the Complex General Surgery Oncology Fellowship at Johns Hopkins University. Fabian, Carla, Lola, welcome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, Fabian, I wanted to go to you first. You know, we had a discussion, you know, before this podcast, and, and you wanted to you wanted to frame this and lay this out in a certain way, and you made several good points. Can you just start us off by framing this discussion on this very complex topic? Yeah. So, I first want to thank you um, because you first approached me about um, doing this um, podcast, um, and so. You know, we've recently been talking about uh, allies, um, and I think, you know, um, you providing this opportunity for us to be here is great. Um, next, I want to thank my co-panelists, uh, too, uh, prior to going into this, um, um, because uh, I, I purposely um, asked these two, um, two uh, women that exude excellence um, at all facets of, of their lives, and so... Um, I'm, I'm very appreciative of being here uh, with them. And so, you know, I think framing this is important. A lot of discussions that uh, occur uh, around this, and we'll, we'll, we'll find that we may get into this a little bit, um, involve leaders asking um, people of color uh, to uh, create a, to talk about their own experiences. And we're really not here to talk about our own experiences or, um, you know, make a sad story for someone. Um, because these things are uh, real, realistically everyday lives, every, our everyday lives. Um, we're living a lot of experiences and, and if you want to find out about something uh, as a majority uh, person in any way or someone who um, doesn't, um, um, understand or wants to understand more, you can certainly ask uh, folks, but this is not um, the time or place for that. So we want to make sure we set boundaries for that for the listeners so they understand what they're going to be hearing. We're going to be trying to um, uh, focus on facts. 
we're going to be focusing on tangible things uh, that can be done uh, in academic medicine and um, as a small microcosm, uh, systemic racism, um, which is just that it's systemic and it's institutional, um, and it really is embedded throughout um, the entirety of our lives. Again, we're living all these things um, in our everyday lives. With that, I think, you know, before we go into it, I think it's important that, you know, we kind of define what we're talking about. Systemic racism um, is a form of racism, um, period, end of sentence, so that is, but that's also embedded in normal practices within society or an organization. And so it leads to issues of discrimination in both criminal justice, um, employment, housing. For us, we're focusing on healthcare, certainly political power, and in some people's uh, mind, education is probably the most important uh, uh, issue uh, that we face. And so that's kind of how we're going to define this, and that's kind of the foundation of what we're going to be moving forward with here. I think one thing I want to emphasize is that systemic racism is not something from the past. You know, many people want to believe that, or wanted to believe um, that as of a four years ago, that we were beyond race and beyond racism in the United States, and we're not. Um, and I think we need to just accept the fact that it is intrinsic, um, and that's not something we can um, pretend has already happened. So. We still have many colleagues who will tell you that there is no racism, there is no discrimination. So having to um, proselytize this is in and of itself a little bit exhausting, but I hope that people who don't think it's real will take seriously what Fabian and Carla and I are saying and what we've experienced and what we've lived and believe us that it is real because they have to start with having buy-in into our experience and the experience of people they care about and respect and have trained with and who they've trained to know that we wouldn't want to make up something as awful as feeling like you don't belong, no matter how hard you try. I couldn't agree more, and I won't add much. I, I think you guys have covered it well. I, I think it's just that one thing that you, you mentioned, you know, when you say systemic, it's all around us. It's been there for a while, and it really takes some historians, policy persons, folks who understand economics, to really point those things out. And I'm really glad that some of it is coming up online, like tutorials. But I think that's the part that's difficult for some people is because it's been part of the system for so long, you can't really see it. Um, obviously, when something happens, then it brings out, you know, that it exists, even with the disproportionate uh, people of color, African-Americans dying of COVID. That is the in the problem, but now we actually have to take several steps back to see how did this happen? It's ingrained in the system so well that we can't even put our finger on it directly to one thing, it's so many things. So I think that's the, the complexity of the work ahead is explaining that. That's gonna provide a really nice segue in my mind. You know, it's the undercurrent of everything we do, right? But what you said there is, you know, where do you start? And what we, what people are going to have heard a few times now is, hey, this is not like you're holding hate in your heart, right? People always want to think of only racism is that. I'm not racist. Nothing about racist. But it's really uh, about uh, a more systemic thing. And certainly there are things that you can do to change this. And so I want to ask both of you guys, um, 
you know, let's start, you know, this is on the foundation of in academic medicine, this is what we're focusing on, right? Or in medicine in general, because it doesn't have to be academic. If people that are listening to this are going to be in private practice and the same things. And the reality is there's only so many African-American um, or Latino, uh, Latinx uh, academic surgeons, period, right? The majority are in private practices. So this is going to be a universal thing organizationally. So how would you guys, um, you know, uh, talk with uh, folks, talk to the folks listening about, you know, where should they start individually? How, where should they, um, you know, how should they focus? Um, I'm happy to go first. You know, I would encourage people to start with some self-education and also some self-reflection. There are a lot of books out there, and frankly, you could do worse than to read the top 10 on the New York Times bestsellers lists. Um, and I think one thing that's really um, potentially on the shoulders of people in power is you can um, shine a light on these issues for the people who report to and work with you. So um, I know section chiefs and division chiefs and tillers around the country who um, mailed copies of how to be anti-racist to members of their section division department. Um, and I would argue that once you go one step further to actually encourage a discussion about those things so that the books are actually read, the messages are internalized, and there's an opportunity to reflect on them both personally and in um, community with other people. But I think that um, that is a first step. Recognizing that the second step will involve talking to your colleagues who have experienced these things, but you do them a service if you've already done some self-education, some self-reflection, because recognizing that any conversation that deals with race is going to often become personal and often have people having to field questions about things that may be very painful and that they've had to live with their whole lives and to suddenly have to justify that or explain that out loud to someone when it's part of the air you breathe, it's part of the water you drink, it's part of your heartbeat is asking a lot of people to do that. So um, I would say start with some self-education, some self-reflection. People in power can encourage that type of self-education, self-reflection amongst those in their departments um, and start with that. And I would do quite a bit of that before moving on to asking um, people of color to explain their experience to them because that's asking a lot of people and you need to show you've done some work to meet them at that point. I, I really, I mean, I, I, it is, I mean, we're, we're going through it in our department. Um, there's so many opportunities to learn. Um, we worked hard to create a safe space for people to speak up. Um, as we, we had a spark in our department that got it going in terms of some conversations that happened naturally. And then, you know, people were like coming to me in the hallway, like, I want to, you know, I want to support this. I want to talk, but I feel like I have no credibility. And I'm like, if you say in a room full of residents, what you just said to me, automatically, you have credibility. The other um, common theme is, you know, I fear of making a mistake. We have to create a safe place for people to make mistakes. We all make mistakes, mistakes when we're learning. And so um, it was interesting. I told one person, I'm like, I must make mistakes all the time regarding this. This is, this is biases are inherent in who we are. You know, it was comforting for someone, for them to hear from me that I make mistakes. Um, and so I'm like, we have to create a safe place so that we can learn, make mistakes together, 
pick each other up and keep going. I mean, we're, we're not going to move the needle on this if we're cutting each other off at the knees before you can even. You have to leave your ego and your fragility at the door, and you have to create that space. The residents spoke up. The admin spoke up. There are people who are ready to share, ready to educate, ready to partner, and bravery and courage is required. And bravery and courage is what surgeons have in spades, right? I mean, we have been licensed and trained to do what otherwise would be considered assault, right? We are given the privilege of using very dangerous things to open people up and heal them. And it is an incredible gift to receive that trust from our patients, from our communities, but with that gift, with that privilege, comes the potential to do incredible harm. And we take that on every single day. So if we can have that kind of bravery in our professional lives, how can we not have that kind of bravery in our personal conduct, in our ethos, in our ways of dealing with people who train in the crucible with you? I think one of the things that's really powerful to me, and I'm sure you guys can both relate to this, is that we spend so much time with each other, especially in training, right? You know, the time you spent across a table with an attending or with a junior resident or with a senior resident, I mean, is exponentially more than most other people in other professions, even in medicine, spend with the people they work with. And I, and I think of it, I call it a crucible. It's a place in which trust is forged, in which love is forged. It forces people who are very different from each other to have to work together for the common sake of the patient in front of you and for the common sake of taking care of all the patients under your stewardship. And I think that there's a potential in that crucible to also build the kind of openness that allows for us to really delve into these things, to make mistakes, and to recognize that sometimes they're coming from a place of love, but not always. I hope they are, but I think there's a potential for it to be there. You know, um, one thing that I recall, you know, we had a free conversation, one term that one of you guys uh, uh, stated was this term selective aggression. We have M&Ms, you know, somebody does something wrong, and all of a sudden half the room is thinking it, and half the room all the senior people are saying something about what you could have done um, better and how, you know, sometimes it's aggressive, sometimes it's very, you know, uh, come from an honest place, but you're focusing on improving it. But when it comes to these, these moral issues, um, these, these issues uh, truly of life and death um, on a certain level, we somehow don't have the ability to comment on. And so um, I think, you know, we should take the, you know, the ethos, the, you know, what we have taken as surgeons um, and as physicians, um, and we, we spend hours and hours on learning how to tie a knot and learn how to do this. There's no reason as we become a more holistic um, 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 group thinking about our patients that we shouldn't be doing about our colleagues as well. Um, and so um, I, I really appreciate you guys uh, comment on, commenting on that. And I think, you know, one of the other things that is easy enough to do um, is if you're doing your reading, there are things out there like you could do an implicit bias assessment test yourself. It's right on the website, clickety-clack, put it in there in Google and you can find that and see where your, where your, um, where your salt points are. Right, we only call them a, a weakness because you know we all have something that we need to shore up. Um, but it's important to know. the The next thing I really want to say, talk about, then, if you all is, 
you know, we start from an individual level, like, so we're going to work on ourselves. Um, and as you guys said, well, you know, all this, there's all this, I, do I have you know, the cachet? Can I say this? And so then we started looking about, we all live within these bigger structures, these bigger micro environments. And so, you know, if we look at, um, you know, whether you're a leader within your department or division or section, you know, what can kind of a larger group do? What suggestions, thoughts do you guys have, um, you know, about kind of what, what's needed at home, what block spots that exist? How can we address those um, within? You know, you can start or address kind of the microenvironment. Here is my team of two people or three people or a department on uh, mass. Yeah, I mean, really, we we are in the midst of addressing this in 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 our department, um, and um, it's it's very enlightening. One, I'm grateful to to see the number of people and the variety of people that are like, we want to talk about this, let's do it, and then are willing to be vulnerable and have, um, you know, real time epiphanies and share them as they're thinking of it. Um, not everybody can do that. And so what, what I'm learning is that there, there are, um, there's, there's categories of people in the department and, and just as much as in that Eminem, you already know who's going to say what, who's, you know, they, everybody has their personality. Um, I think even one of the books that kind of named each of the people to expect in the room, well, it's the same thing. Um, and I do have to segue to a little bit of a story. You know, when I was at, at Michigan, I'm sorry, at, at University of Wisconsin, the medical students did a, did a die-in um and they were i had never seen one before they were all laid out and they had their signs that said i can't breathe and then separately from the students that were laying on the floor there are at least 20 students that were standing on the stairs in the atrium with a sign that said why do you care and i tell that story because we can't be naive we cannot be naive that there are going to be some of our colleagues who are sitting next to us who sit in that category. It is what it is. Our goal is to partner with those who don't sit in that category and are ready to go. But there's different levels of readiness. Um, and I am learning at least two or three in my department. There are some that have taken a deep dive. They're reading the book. They're calling me and giving history and saying, wow. I mean, they they are active learners, humbling themselves. And then there are others who are focused on more of the bigger conversation, not ready to address specific anti-racism. What's happening to Black and African-Americans in this country. There are some that are just not ready for that conversation, but they're ready to move the agenda of being an upstander, agenda of recognizing bias. And that's all important because that's, at the end of the day, this is a leadership issue. We are going to be forced to lead in a more globally, and I say more globally because we're not right now, a more globally diverse world. 
in surgery in 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 the community in healthcare broadly. We are not we're running fast in healthcare and there's a lot of stuff to keep us busy. But this thing, you know, I what I hope is now that you're running fast, when you see your black colleague next to you who's running fast, they're having a different experience in the healthcare system as a physician than you are. What can you do to make that a little different? So it's a leadership issue, but getting back to it, there's there's different groups. Those that don't care, those that are taking a deep dive, and those that are wanting to address more of the bigger... In terms of thinking about working at the macro level, at the level of a department or an institution, um, I think one first step is to recognize that we need to work on the troubles within versus just saying, let's go and you know volunteer at a school or let's do community service. I think, interestingly, a lot of people, um, their response to the Black Lives Matter movement and increasing kind of social awareness and action around, uh, around anti-Blackness, and I think anti-Blackness needs to be named. It's not just prejudice. It's something very specific to the experience of being Black in America that there's a tendency to want to look out and a tendency to want to say, okay, well, we're going to go do this for the community, in quotes, versus looking in and thinking a lot about what the experience of faculty, trainees, and patients have been in the department. And I think another important group within that is the staff, um, both administrative as well as those providing various services in the institution. And I think any institution that really wants to address anti-Blackness needs to do, at first, a deep dive looking in. And I think that that's hard because I think it's very upsetting to people to realize that there might be that level of directed hostility or even not so benign neglect towards a whole group of people, a specific group of people. But I think that that's really important. Um, I think then if there is going to be developmental action, there needs to be a list. There needs to be a set of goals. It can't be a general hope for greater um, happiness and interaction and collegiality without tasks and a strategy for those tasks. You know, as departments, we regularly say, okay, we want to grow our market share over this period of time by this much. Or we say, we want to achieve this much more money and NIH funding by this time. And they put in mechanisms to make those things happen. If they want to improve marketing, they get advertisements. They get people who know how to increase market share. If they want to increase grant funding, they get people into the department, editors, financial aid individuals, people who are great writers, people who can really help you with the act of writing a grant. And then people, you put money, you put resources into something, you have success. And, um, and the question is, are you willing to put the same amount of money and resources into saying, we are going to have this number of whatever faculty or whatever trainees or whatever um, staff members by this year, and we're going to have strategies for finding people who are excellent. And that needs to be a rubric. And I'm not saying specifically those things as in numbers, but nonetheless, there need to be strategies. Um, the other thing I would say about departmental leadership and institutional leadership is to remember that the best thing you can do 
to advance faculty in your own subsequent department, as well as faculty across the country, is to realize that many of us, most of us study many things besides race, and the extent to which you can recognize the excellence that we are um, perpetuating in clinical affairs and things unrelated to disparities, that is also hugely important. Um, and then the last thing I will say is that it's not only important for leaders to lead, but it's also important for leaders to share. And the reality is until power is shared, until people are willing to divest themselves of positions that are currently occupied predominantly by certain groups, there won't really be people at the table who can affect all the changes that need to happen. So the question is, what is it going to cost? It hurts, but it's gonna cost resources, it's gonna cost money, it's gonna cost introspection, it's gonna cost taking time to achieve certain goals, and it's gonna cost generosity and selflessness and a willingness to share. And that's hard. So thanks so much, uh, all of that. And, and Carla, I mean, thank you guys are so spot on with all that. And, you know, I think the big thing that comes out of this is, uh, to me, one of them is leadership. Um, and, you know, as I'm now kind of delving into leadership development, you know, you, you, Carla, you talked about kind of the different kinds of people that are there and the job of a leader is trying to identify them and try to reach them, right? And so, you know, if somebody doesn't, in my division, my department doesn't want to do something, how do I become an influencer, right? Um, and uh, to try and get them to that 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 space. Um, another thing that I really like that you talked about, and it, uh, some people may not have heard this word before, but an upstander, um, you know, a person who speaks or acts in support of an individual or cause, um, particularly someone who intervenes on behalf of a person being attacked or bullied. Um, and you know, that's, you know, that's more than an ally, right? An ally, you know, stand, stands next to you, an upstander is gonna get in front of you, right? To protect you. Um, and I think, I don't think that that has to be completely separate from Lola, what you were talking about in terms of sharing power and being a sponsor, um, right? I mean, sometimes that is saying, you know, I'm gonna, uh, recognizing that, um, you know, all the things that folks are doing and saying, I see you, and now I'm going to put you in a position. Um, uh, and so I really think that those are really important uh, points here. And I, I think the other thing to think about for folks that are really trying to do this is, you know, uh, as we were just talking about in the kind of starting with yourself, you don't have to start from scratch, right? You don't have to scratch your head and wonder like, how do I do this? You know. Um, you know, there are departments, um, there are usually, um, you know, uh, groups within your own hospital for diversity, equity, inclusion. And I will tell you, they are looking to do this, right? They are looking to work with people. And also, they're looking to work with people that really want to be focused on it. I can tell you, I know more than a few um, uh, chiefs of DI, the, the diversity, equity, inclusion that have left their jobs because they're like, these people are serious, right? They're not interested in their, they've talked lip service. They did this big recruitment search and I'm there for two, three years and no one really focused. Um, and that goes up to deans across America. So if your dean is listening, I'm talking to you too, right? Deans and presidents of hospitals. And so, you know, if you're going to be and you want to be intentional and those leaders should uh, seek out those things. And also 
I'm going to give a shout out to um, um, my friend Erica Newman at the University of Michigan. They've developed a Michigan Promise program that is being spread at certain uh, universities. I think Stanford's a part of it. The NGH is a part of it um, as well. Um, uh, and so they're working on things specifically in, 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 in uh, for surgery. And the other thing, I'll, last thing I'll end on with that is, you know, um, when we're looking to be an excellent department, um, you can start from the Harvard Business Review and you can go anywhere else that talks about this. Diversity equals excellence, right? And um, when you start having and trying to identify and create a diverse environment um, that recognizes the wealth of, of uh, abilities that are out there, then you start building a, 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 a diverse, uh, a, a very strong department. I'll say, you know, uh, look at people that are being intentional about this. It's usually many times the top universities, right, that are, that are doing that. And I think there are people within there that are recognizing this. I'll say personal story. I was shocked as a resident. I, I came through the back door at Wash U. Uh, couldn't walk in the front door, but I came through the back door and I was shocked how many, how diverse the residency was. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, when you're talking about, you know, folks that are kind of rubbing off each other, you know, folks see uh, a little by Andrew and, you know, what, who she is. Um, and that rubs off and then a lot of them say, yeah, I need to identify people like that. So kind of segueing again, you know, you know, a quick thought on partnerships that folks should think about, departments should think about. I think I may mean, I kind of hit on it maybe with some of the, you know, some of the things I talked about, but any, any additions you guys have to that? When you say partnerships, um, you know, I mean, Lola mentioned a number, you know, of partnerships in terms of building the infrastructure from a business standpoint, which we know it's well ingrained and, you know, adding to that from a marketing perspective, you know, um, business finance and things like that. But, I mean, uh, you know, if you're in an academic uh, center, you know, the graduate schools and the undergraduate uh, um programs, um, they all have, you know, folks in the social sciences and the history. And I, I think that that even communication, we're having someone from a business school talk to us about how to receive feedback, how to communicate. Um, and so, so there's a lot of campus resources. And right now, um, I think that, you know, um, those of us on, on uh, major campuses with, with those types of resources, reach out. I mean, I think that, you know, you've got people who've spent their life and their career working in this area. They would love nothing more, especially, I mean, people think that surgeons don't want, we don't want to learn any of this. And so when they hear from us, they're stepping up and they're surprised and they're happy to help. So I would say, you know, reach out, Speak to folks across the campus and and have them come and educate your faculty and present that you know intellectual framework that we're used to um, as surgeons within a in a medical business uh, arena. So, lots lots lot of educated folks there that can guide us. I completely agree. I think you know. Frankly, the COVID-19 pandemic has led to a lot of transdisciplinary team science, right? Where we have economists and sociologists and cultural anthropologists and physicians and nurses and epidemiologists working together to try to tackle what is clearly um, a series of systemic problems intersecting as a result of this pandemic. 
um, and as a result, having outsized effects in certain communities. And it didn't take long to realize this wasn't just a medical problem. It doesn't wasn't just an economic problem. It wasn't just a sociological problem. All of those issues, all of those fields needed to be tapped into to begin to understand what we were seeing and then also to do something about it. So likewise, um, I think with regards to um, addressing systemic racism, let's embrace the um, interdisciplinary collegiality that's actually been prompted by this moment in terms of what we're studying at the COVID-19 level um, and embrace that in terms of trying to do some self-work. I think y'all just kind of blew my mind there because, you know, I wasn't even thinking about kind of even being that expansive. So I think, I hope, I imagine a lot of people are going to be like, wow, I didn't even think about that. That's just great. I know how to talk to those people. Um, and, you know, as one of my friends is a history professor, he's like, man, I, I'll be right over there in a second to tell y'all what to do. I'd love to tell the doctors what to do. Are you kidding me? Uh, so, you know, we've talked a good bit now about, like, how do we move forward? Um, and, you know, earlier on, we talked about, um, you know, folks being afraid of, of moving forward and, and, and how to do so. And so, you know, I'd like to ask you guys, you know, uh, some thoughts on, you know, either what not to do or how do you uh, recover from doing that thing you weren't supposed to do? Because, you know, it happens. We all have uh, um, 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 uh, mishaps. And so, you know, what should we be doing to, to be intentional, um, you know, if you're an ally and you want to kind of improve on this? Just because you make a mistake doesn't mean you shouldn't come back. That people shouldn't be afraid of making mistakes. As we talked about earlier, you know, we make mistakes all the time. And I would really ask that even if you make a mistake, we rather that you try and come back and take feedback as we may have to learn how to do and try again. Um, you know, I think um, as the twin scourges of both um, systemic racism and its translation into brutality against black people, as well as the um, outsized effect that COVID-19 has had on communities of color, as those things intersected, a lot of communities, a lot of societies were releasing statements saying, I stand in solidarity with black lives or what have you. And, um, and there was a lot of parsing. Um, you can see that on black Twitter as well as black med Twitter, people parsing those responses. You know, how sincere were they? Did they reflect the perspective of any actual black person? Um, were they probably written by the one black person on the board, thereby imposing more work on that individual at a time when they're coping with um, what is obviously a very difficult period for them professionally and they need to just kind of keep chugging along. So there's a lot of parsing and um, investigation and criticism of some of these statements. Um, and then what happened is that I think many groups chose not to release anything because they were so afraid of how people would respond to them and judge them based on the um, negative response that some organizations had. And I actually think that's tragic. And I would actually go further to say that I wish that the organizations that quote unquote got it wrong or didn't do a great job the first time or maybe missed some aspect of the message that other people would have wanted, that they left those first statements up. I would rather see evolution and change and progress and a willingness to own a mistake than to simply erase it and to delete that tweet or delete that message from your board. Um, 
And I, I hope people just keep coming back and recognize that um, as Carla beautifully said in her Association of Women Surgeons speech uh, in San Francisco uh, last year, sometimes the sculpting will hurt. She gave this amazing talk on how your best mentors are, are going to sculpt you into a person, but sometimes the chiseling hurts. And that's actually the people who really love you, who will take the time to tell you all the ways in which you could be better. You know, I think all of us can speak to how painful the bigotry of low expectations is. When people don't frankly push you to be a better surgeon, to be a better writer, to be a better um, academician, because they want you, they don't want to hurt your feelings. They want you just to get by. Well, you know what? Likewise, amongst black surgeons, we don't want to, we don't want to lower expectations for our colleagues because there is a certain love and respect we have for other surgeons. We believe that we are capable of this as a profession, that others are capable of this as individuals. And so we don't want to hold you to that low standard. If we come and we criticize, it's out of love and it's out of a belief that you can do better. And so I would encourage people to try and try again and versus giving up or being afraid to try and potentially not get it perfect. So this is Scott, and um, I just want to piggyback on the question to the panel a little bit uh, to kind of ask you to expand upon what Lola was just talking about a little bit. So forever I've heard, don't ever talk about race, religion, politics, and money, because people are either scared of saying the wrong thing, they're worried about if they don't agree with anything, how that comes out, and to start somewhere down a path or rabbit hole they don't want to. And so as a, for somebody like me, a white male department chair that's going in, what advice do you have to people of, I mean, what authority do I have to be able to talk on this? Or do, how do we start these conversations to kind of talk and expand about some of the things that you were just talking about? So maybe it's not even a mistake that's been made. It's just a, a non-starter. How do you, what advice do you have for people like myself, for people that are out there to basically want to start that, but want to start it in the right way and have open and honest conversations? I'll, I'll just quickly say my little part. Um, I think I don't have any problems talking about those things, but you know, when those things go off the rails um, and the race relation politics, it's, I think people don't come with a honest, um, and honesty and humility. Um, I think people already have their preconceived notions of where they, where they are, um, and they don't really necessarily want to learn, right? As a, you know, consider self, myself a moderate. I'm not sure if that even exists anymore, but I consider myself a moderate. Um, and, and you know, I come. I really want to know about these different people's views, um, but you know, some people are so aggressive, um, and so you don't get anywhere. So I think it's about, you know, coming into a conversation with a humility and honesty that you don't really know. I mean, somebody, again, we're surgeons, right? If you don't know something, you, you're, I tell my interns, like, you don't know, just ask. It's worse if you just go and do some stuff, right? Like, I actually have a thing that one of my med students said, like, don't just do something, brother. Like, that's what you think, because I say that all the time, don't just do something, right? Like, just ask, it's okay, because you're looking to learn um, um, from someone. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, towards that end, then you also have to be open, as, as Lola was saying, about, you know, the, the response, right? And, you know, most people aren't going to be angry. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I'll, example with Lola and I, when we were residents, I beat her up a little bit, 
because I, I told her, and I told her, I told her directly, like, I want you to be awesome, right? Like, I want you to be super awesome, and I don't want you to learn uh, or make any mistakes as, as, as long as you don't have to, right? And that's, you know, the same thing that's going to come uh, come from those kinds of conversations. And so the same kind of thing, I don't, if I don't know about someone's religion, like, please correct me, you know, if I, if I say something ignorant, um, and I'm coming from a place of humility. So I think that's one thing I would say for it. Yeah, thanks for your question. I mean, I love that. Uh, you know, I, I I think just the way you worded the question, you know, as a, as a department chair, like, and it's the same streams that we're hearing, you know, I don't, I feel like I don't have any credibility. How would I do this? As a department chair, you are like the leader in the department. So even just that expression of humility gives other people permission to join you in the conversation. Let's learn this together. And what the the department chair has is the power to devote the time to call on the division chiefs, the different specialties to have someone appointed to, or, or ask people who's, who wants to step to the plate to help us take a deep dive. Um, and like you said, just be prepared. You probably know who will and who won't anyway. Um, and you don't want to force the person who doesn't want to do it because it's going to be a failure. So I, I, but I think, I think the chairs have such power in just being brave and saying, this is horrible. We must act. This is the time we are going to dedicate it within our formal existing curricula, not after hours, not on your own time. That's additive. You can do both. And those who are doing both are doing better because they're spending more time. But that's the power of a department chair. And you are going to motivate people. You are going to enable them to stand up. And just doing that, you are saying, this is important to our department. And there are going to be people who are going to step up to the plate, and you are giving them permission. But if the department chairs don't step up, those who had an inkling or some small idea or a big idea, they may say, well, it's not important in my department, so I'm not going to do it. Or I'll do this small thing on my own time, but I have to focus on what the chair thinks is important. So if the chairs don't think it's important, it's not going to happen at a high level, not at the level that it needs to happen. And, you know, as the chair, you have a platform, as basically, you know, Carl and Fabian just said, you can make grand rounds, whatever you want, right? In collaboration with the vice chair of education, instead of having an after hours, coffee hour, lunch talk that is organized by some group of people who are frankly already overworked during this time and underappreciated by some members of the department and the institution, give them the privilege of the podium, the privilege of grand rounds, the privilege of these high profile events where most people are going to attend because then they'll realize this is not just lip service. It's something that's being prioritized and that you think the whole department should be partaking in, not just those who choose to participate. And, you know, one thing I'll say, too, is um, as you're doing this, don't just think about your faculty, right? 
you know, uh, you know, I sit here in Baltimore, and the majority of the workforce here um, is um, that, that in, in my hospital is black, right? And so, what are we doing? How, how are nurses being appreciated, and are they being promoted and retained? And um, you know, what's going on with our staff? How do they feel in terms of their treatment, right? Because there's a power structure there, right? Um, and so we need to consider what we're doing with the other people around us and how we're treating them, um, because that's also going to speak volumes, right? Um, you know, there are people that will say, you know, the only person I spoke to in my hospital were the, you know, the people that were cleaning or, the, you know, how, how are those people being treated? That's how you're going to work on, you know, retaining some people within your institution. They don't feel good about their jobs. You know, why would I stay there? Um, and so, you know, don't just think only about like I need to focus on what I'm trying to recruit. I want this one person. It's an environment. It's a structure. It's everyone around you. So, uh, I would certainly think about that. So, um, I, I it's coming up on you know on time for us, um, and you know I want to give you guys an opportunity. You know, we 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 talked about um, um, some takeaway points for folks and. Uh, that I kind of have down here, but you know, what would you want uh, folks to take away from this experience? So, Eric, you can each just give one takeaway. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll go first. Um, just in the last bits that we're talking about, you know, um, permission to fail, fear of failure. You know, the irony of the failures—they actually represent truth. They represent a point of thought that someone had that they felt was justified at that point in time, which means that others can learn from that. And I think those who fail and come back with a vengeance and, you know, make good on that, and we've seen that happening, those persons have more credibility than, than those who don't try at all. Because it's like falling down and getting back up. You know, I, I that that means that they're still they, they took a hit and they accept the mistake and they're back. We're not giving up. We're going to continue to fight with you. I mean, there's a whole lot of respect in that. And so but you want to look at what was that that failure? And some of them are, are, are ones that we can all learn from. Mostly it's not really addressing the issues or being soft or not, you know, I, the, the little things I think are small, but it's sort of if you if you're saying you're going to have an anti-blackness learning session, but then you focus on other things, it means you sort of failed. Um, you're you're not sticking by what you said you're going to do, um, and then you turn around and you do it and you go deep on it, and everyone, I mean, people are going to remember what they learned and what they took away. So I I think I think. We all just have to be brave and step up and, and, and use our position, whatever it is, to move the agenda. Um, I would say that, you know, as part of that courage, it's a willingness to look into the unknown and recognize we don't know what an end or what a perfect situation would look like and that we may never get to one. Um, one, that, one thing I think I'm finding personally very wearying right now as we enter, you know, month four of, or month five of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States is that it's very hard right now to see an end. 
it's very hard right now to imagine what a post-COVID-19 world will look like, when we'll get there, and what shape we're all going to be in by the time we get there. And I think it's going to be something similar with systemic racism. When you're engaged in this kind of self-reinvention um, with regards to COVID-19 as a society, as a country, frankly, as a planet, it's really hard to sit in that discomfort and sit in that ambiguity about the future. And I would encourage people to be willing to sit with that discomfort. It's very hard for us as surgeons. We are driven by immediate gratification. We are driven by a certainty of our own rightness. Um, and so I think we need to fight our own natures a little bit, embrace the courage that I think most of us bring to our work, but be a little bit willing to be uncertain. Thank you guys uh, for that. Um, and you know, we've heard so much from both of you. Um, and I hope that I hand it back over to uh, my friend Grayson, um, that others would listen, um, really take the time out to go and learn and not be afraid to fail, right? You have, you have everyone's permission to fail. We all fail um, in multiple points of our life, as my wife has screamed at me many times, and I go back and try and learn again and do it better. Um, you know, there's no reason that um, this should be any different. So I want to thank you both um, for sharing your wisdom um, for sharing uh, your experience and your courage. Uh, and I want to thank uh, the whole Behind the Knife crew for giving us this platform uh, to discuss these uh, aspects of life that are really important. And, and more importantly, we don't want this to be a moment, right? You know, we don't want this to be something that, oh, you know, now it just kind of dies down. Uh, we hope that there's, there's going to be a bigger intentionality and a growth um, that comes from this um, um, and what we're seeing across the country and more people speaking up. Um, surgery is very much a very conservative uh, profession, um, but we hope that for the faculty, uh, for the trainees and students, um, that this creates an environment that will return that's going to uh, pay dividends to their overall uh, mental and social uh, and career well-being. Well, I have one final question for, for you for all. Um, so you know, we talked a lot about leadership. We talked a lot about taking a deep dive and, and, um, and you know, being willing to fail. For those department chairs, those people in leadership out there that, that are willing to take that first step and, 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 and want to take a deep dive, where, where should they start? So, um, my, my good friend shared this book with uh, this list with me, but I'll, I will say um, a quote one there. Um, uh, Stand from the beginning, the definitive history of racist ideas in America by Ibram uh, X. Kendi is one um, that you can uh, go and uh, look at um, there to begin with. Um, the other thing, another book that I was going to get um, is uh, that I was going to get some paperback, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. And so, you know, people really just think, well, well, you know, just get over it. <laughs> but um, these are intentional decisions that have, that have been made, um, and they continue to be intentional decisions that are made. 
um, that uh, affect uh, the lives of black and brown people. And so, um, you know, looking at just a simple paperback history of what goes on in government alone, I think is going to be uh, uh, very informative. I think, I think, um, yeah, those are great uh, books and resources. I think there's specific topic um, areas and one that I've seen um, you can find any tutorial, you know, just uh, on Google regarding red lines. That's an example of systemic racism that people mm-hmm. need to understand. You don't see it or understand it. You could live your whole life as part of one community and not even know that it's happening. But if you commit to learning about that one thing that gives you something very specific to reflect on and think about. Um, I think you can start with even just an article that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine the past 24 hours by Kemi Dahl and Charles Thomas. Um, Dr. Dahl is uh, a gynecologic oncologist at the University of Washington and Dr. Thomas, the radiation oncologist um, at Oregon. And they wrote, they co-wrote a great piece just on um, concrete things that departments can do to support um, black faculty and underrepresented minority faculty. And Dr. Dahl speaks eloquently of her own experience being recruited and how challenging that was. So, you know, one of the big elephants in the room is it's it's fine to aspire to have a diverse faculty, but um, what is the pace of change in that faculty? Are the black faces being replaced by different black faces? Are the brown faces being replaced by different brown faces? Are you seeing ascension amongst the people who you recruit? And are you seeing success amongst the people you bring into your institution? Are they staying there and are they thriving or are they being um, encouraged to leave or seeking greener pastures elsewhere? I would actually start with that article that just came out today. And then when you read articles like that, follow the bibliographies because people often cite things that then could also further your education. There's a lot of great stuff that's been published in the past few months in both New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA. Excellent, thank you for those recommendations. I think uh, I'll probably be reaching out to you guys to get get our lists together and we can, we can post it in our show notes uh, for anybody that's interested um, and learn a little bit more. Uh, well, I can't thank you guys enough for your your honesty, your humility, and your willingness to participate in this conversation. So, Dr. Pugh, Dr. Payanju, Dr. Johnston, thank you very much for uh, talking with Behind the Night today. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. Until next time, dominate the day. 